If people ask themselves, should every family sit down and do therapy together? No. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Whether we like it or not, our family and upbringing are hardwired into us. And the impact of this is clear in so many areas of our lives. We shouldn't let our past define us, but learning how family dynamics shape us is vital for personal growth and self-discovery. Julia Samuel, MBE, is one of the UK's most well-known psychotherapists. She's a podcast host and author of three books, all Sunday Times bestsellers. And in this conversation, you'll learn about the importance of your past, how therapy works, and how we can better process trauma and grief. In the last 30 years that you have been a therapist, do you feel that in some way all families are slightly dysfunctional? Yes, I mean, I think all families have dysfunction in them depending on what the external and internal stresses are and that we move on the spectrum of function and dysfunction. And what's important in families is that capacity to move that your that families are flexible and can manage extremes of uh, pressure where families get locked and rigid as dysfunctional is when they want control over difficult things and then that is much harder for the whole family system to work effectively because it becomes very brittle I think so many times, especially when there's Christmas or family occasions, you know, things can get quite more intense at home in family situations. And I'm just putting Christmas at the forefront. But I think so many in those moments, we kind of think everyone else's family is quite normal and ours always feels a bit hectic. And I've personally been having therapy since I was 20 and I'm now going to be turning 34 next week. So I feel like I've had lots of conversations. But the one thing that I really struggled with at the very beginning is the feeling of shame associated with addressing anything that comes up regarding your family. Is that something that you see a lot come up? I think we certainly can feel, I mean, guilt and then guilt can lead to a sense of shame when it gets kind Mm. of stuck. And I think that comes from a sense of loyalty to one's family, you know, that you really love your family and, you know, where we love most, we hate most. And where we hate most, we make our deepest mistakes and have our deepest regrets. And so, you know, there is no perfect family. So within every family, however happy your childhood was or how loved you were, there will be a legacy of experiences that you need to explore and kind of sort for yourself. But I think there's this sense of I need to put on a show of being a happy family if I'm being loyal. Mm -hmm. I think what matters is who you're speaking to and who's trustworthy. So speaking to a therapist who's not going to speak to anybody, and that is the contract, then it's really useful to be, you know, very open and really kind of go inside and explore every aspect of where the shame might be, because the beneath the shame might be a sense of injury or that there's something wrong with you or, you know, something that you're not aware of that is actually playing out in your behaviour every day. But I think that doesn't mean that you sit next to someone um, at supper or that, uh, that you slag off your family. Because if you, you, I think we do basically want to be loyal about our families. I mean, if you really don't like mm. your family, then that's fine. 
But um, <laughs> I think often it's quite a bad look when we're rude about our partners or our families if we really love them. Yeah. Because we need to sort them out with them and not slag them off about them. Yeah, well, it's one of these things, isn't it? Kind of looking back on your past and reflecting and and you talk a lot about this in your book that I really want to come on to. And you mentioned a line that the story you tell yourself is the story that you become. It really was quite poignant to me, that line, when I read that. And I thought that highlights quite a good reason why actually we should all embrace therapy. I'm glad that that resonated with you because I think that it's real truth is that, you know, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is the person we become and that it needs to be a changing story. So if we have a very fixed, rigid story, then that becomes a kind of set of rules and behaviours that kind of can lock you down. Mm. Whereas if you're aware of the narrative, if you're aware of what you're telling yourself and you allow it to expand and change as you expand and change in response to how you are living and what is happening to you, then that's a growing, thriving narrative that supports you. Mm. What I loved about this is that you actually wrote the first line within your book. You got straight to it. It really struck with me because you said, every family has a story except my family never told theirs. And I was like, tell me more. So (laughs) I'm sure that (laughs) so many people listening want to know a bit about your story. And actually, you know, you obviously grew up, you know, not maybe not how many people expected, with a very open communicator family. So I'd love for you to kind of tell us a bit about your personal story and your road to where you are now. So I'm an entirely different generation to you. You know, you're the same age as my youngest child, as it turns out. Um, And (laughs) my parents were the generation who fought in the Second World War, whose parents fought in the First World War. So they were very much the generation who believed, because they didn't have an alternative, that what you don't say isn't going to hurt you and that to kind of keep calm and carry on and forget and move on. And so both of my parents had very many significant losses. So my mum was an orphan by the time she was 25. Both her siblings and both her parents had, had died and my father, his father and his brother had died. And neither of them ever talked about any of those people. So there were black and white photographs of some of them, but they never talked about them. They didn't know, talk about the circumstances of their death and they all died traumatically. My, you know, my uncle was killed in the war. My aunt was killed by inhaling vacuum cleaner. Um, my other uncle died in a dentist chair. You know, so they all died very suddenly. Um, and what we were good at is putting on a show. There was five children. My mum had two sets of twins and a middle and my middle sister. So I'm a twin and I've got twin sisters. So there were five of us in four years. And like then very few people had twins, let alone two sets of twins. So we were sort of like we were walking down the street all dressed the same. We looked like this perfect family. But below the waterline, obviously there was a lot of pain and a lot of loss that mm. was never voiced. And I think that obviously influenced me to both be curious about what was going on people on the inside and also without me recognizing it at the time bias me towards bereavement at the beginning it's really interesting actually because as you were saying this when i was reading your books this week the multiple books that you've you've done you've done three now my dad called me i spoke to him about grief in one moment because he lost his mother last year um 
And I just thought, actually, you know, I'm just going to ask my dad. I'm going to have this moment and just say, how did you feel about this? Or, you know, what comes up for you? Which is, you know, my dad's generation, for him anyway, he's very much black and white. And he just said, just get on with it. Just get on with it. And it was a really interesting dynamic to have this conversation of me going, but how did you feel? And really trying to kind of like hold that space. And this was no, you know, he couldn't resonate with with having that type of conversation. He was just like, you know, you live and then you pass away and you've got to live life to the fullest. And it was very much just kind of, we're going to get on with it and we're going to the next chapter. I mean, just to add that I think what is powerful and why I wrote the books is that because they are real stories of real people I work with, I mean, they're disguised, is that when we read stories of of other people, we actually recognize ourselves because the most personal is the most universal. So although Mm. a lot of those people, they had very different lives to you and backgrounds and everything, but their experiences would connect to you. Their emotions are universal and Mm -hmm. often how they cope with them, we would all recognize in ourselves. Well, it's really interesting because I know that having that conversation with my father made me also think of something else that you did quite relatively new in COVID where you have been a therapist for an extraordinarily long time. You've got an incredible amount of experience, but in COVID you started bringing families together and not just parents and children, but grandparents all together on Zoom. And great grandparents of our four generations. I don't know if you'll hear that much of that today, but four generations all together on Zoom. I have found it so fascinating because you speak about a lot of these in your recent book and actually how they all play out. And there's a term transgenerational trauma, which I find really interesting. Past trauma, as you mentioned, from, you know, grandparents and great grandparents can actually trickle down and have an effect on us today. And then when we're ready to feel it, we actually start to release that trauma. So could you just talk a little bit about the work that you do there? Thank you for listening so far. Now, I've been a customer of Arena Flowers for a very long time. So having them finally sponsor Live Well, Be Well is utterly amazing. And I have a special discount code just for you guys. A big part of my self-care routine is self-love. And having flowers around my home, like you can see in the background if you're watching this on YouTube, is the perfect way to achieve that. Arena Flowers are the UK's number one ethical florist. All their packaging is free from single-use plastics. So if you're ready to put a smile on someone's face and positively impact the planet, use the discount code LWBW50 for 50% off your first three subscription boxes. Make your first order now by clicking the link in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I think, the, I mean, one of the interesting questions for people to ask themselves, you know, if rather than saying what's wrong with me, it's to look up and look and hear and listen to the un- untold stories that they may be carrying that they don't even know that they're carrying. Mm. And how transgenerational trauma is passed down is is two kind of pathways. One is epigenetically, so it changes the genetic coding in our bodies that gets passed down in the womb from generation to generation. It gives babies and the and grandchildren heightened levels of cortisol. And this is true of all trauma. Nothing is inevitable. There was a Holocaust family I, I worked with um, in my book, 
and the great-grandmother was a survivor of Auschwitz. She, she did not have post-traumatic stress disorder, although she'd been in Auschwitz two and a half years. So just, you know, I think people talk about trauma like you have one bad thing and it's in you forever and everybody has it. It's influenced by all sorts of different environmental factors and genetic factors. But the other pathway that it gets passed down and the two can play out together is behavioural. So if you have a parent who is traumatised, their response in life will be a heightened one. They may kind of shake if you slam a door. They may have particular responses around food or working hard or safety that they will feel more under threat and they will transmit to you that life is dangerous and that you have to be vigilant. You need to kind of sort yourself out, make sure you're okay, make sure you do this. It's more kind of vigilant. And obviously, if you have inherited genetic trauma and you play those behaviours, then your children carry it. Um, And so there's been a lot of research all over the world. I mean, the, the research that I particularly looked at I looked at a lot, actually, but the one I remember the best is Rachel Yehuda looked at the research of second and third generational um, Holocaust survivor families in Israel and how that get passed down. But, there, you know, there's there's a lot of research about um, 9-11, about Amsterdam, well, Holland uh, during the Second World War, families where, the, where pregnant women were starved and their children they stored food differently because their mothers had been starving. And so they inherited a gene. They put on more weight and actually had heart disease because their gene code was changed because their mothers were starving. So, I mean, it's incredibly interesting. It's a whole new concept of, of understanding where other trauma could come from. And sometimes, I think when you go to therapy, there's not always a direct answer or a direct way to solve something. And so it's quite interesting to actually hear that it can be not just an event that's happened in your life, but actually from a past life within your family. I think that's just something that's quite eye-opening maybe to many people listening to this and maybe wanting to have that conversation with their parents. The transmission goes on down until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And pain is the agent of change. And that when we allow ourselves to feel the pain and express the pain, it releases us from the distress that's holding us hostage, if you like, to the trauma. And then when we feel it, we paradoxically heal and we then have more trust and are more open. Just hearing about kind of your own family dynamic, have you managed to kind of go back into that and understand more about this on for yourself and your side? Because it sounds like obviously there was a lot of trauma and a lot of unforeseen events that happened at such early ages. Yes, I mean, obviously as a therapist, I've had decades of therapy and supervision yeah. and training and, you know, in some ways, writing books is incredibly, it forces you into kind of therapy in yourself because you have to work out what you think and feel before you put it on the page. Mm-hmm. And actually, my book, Every Family Has a Story, changed my relationship with my parents. I mean, they're both um, dead now. I mean, I always loved my parents and I didn't particularly blame them, but I have a deeper understanding and a deeper sense of compassion for them that they were really doing the best that they could given who they were and where they'd come from. I think that's the biggest part, isn't it, is is self-compassion through so much of this work. It's a really big part to play. And you do have your 12 touchstone points right at the end of the book. And self-compassion is one of the leading ones. And I love 
you write, which has literally stayed in my mind, shitty committee. <laughs> it's one of my, it's like, I was like, didn't expect that to come out of your mouth at all. But could you explain a little bit about this? Because I think it's such a, it resonated with me so much on how we can actually inflict a lot of pain during that when actually we need to hold a lot of space for that self-compassion. Yeah. So I'm glad you were surprised. You know, you can't have rules for families. People want rules because then they think, well, if I tick off every bit of the rule, then I'm perfect. And none of us are perfect. So that, and it isn't a place to even try and aim for. But I did 12 touchstones for the well-being of families, which are kind of attitudes and behaviours and ways of being that help support you and your family, given that we're all kind of doing the best we can and, and having hard times a lot of the time or some of the time, whenever we do. And I think one of the complexities of suffering is that when we're hurting, we often hurt people and then we often turn that hurt and rage against ourselves. And we have mm -hmm. what I call a shitty committee where we then attack ourselves like, you idiot, why are you doing it like this? You should be okay by now. You're such a fool. Stop making such a fuss. Get on. Whatever all those critical voices are saying. And that just kind of compounds your suffering and gives you a narrow and narrow window of connecting to others, which is the place where we heal is by the love and connection to others. So if we can kind of open our window, allow ourselves all of our different feelings, both the fury that we feel, the rage that we feel, the jealousy, the envy and the love and the, the sort of humour of dark humour often in grief, if we can turn to ourselves with self-compassion, with as much kindness towards ourselves as we would to another, then that is releasing and opens us. And then we are kind of window to ourselves is bigger for feeling. We calm down, the threat system calms down. And when we calm down, we can connect to our heart and the thing that matters most whenever we are suffering is love. The love of the person maybe who's died, if they're bereaved, or the love of the people we're furious with, and the love of others and the love for ourselves. And so it brings me to like the next conversation, which is communication, which I think is really, really important. Um, because a lot of us can shy away from conflict. Um, I think it's a really natural human emotion, but it's also really important to, I think, address that head on. But it can be really difficult to have these conversations, especially in family dynamics. What advice would you give to help explore these difficult conversations, especially in family settings? I mean, I think the, the place to start from is to recognise that every family will have conflict, that we will all fight. Because yeah. where, you know, as I said before, where you love most, you hate most and you yeah. have your biggest response. In some yeah. ways, indifference is the opposite of love, not hate. And that as a way of communicating in families, a kind of attitude is to allow difference um, and to recognise that seven people can have seven different views and there is no one right one, but to allow people to have their collective views with a kind of sense of collaborative power that everybody has agency and can be heard. Probably the biggest 
kind of skill in communication is the capacity to listen, to listen fully to what the person is saying, to listen to what is going below the waterline, what they're feeling, where they're coming from, to look at their visual cues, and then to reflect and let them know that you've heard what they've said. And then you, once people feel heard, they feel kind of received enough to be able to listen then to what you have to say. And I think often we transmit so fast that the person doesn't feel heard. And then that's when you can have an escalation of I'm right, you're right, I'm right, you're right. But also you will still have fights. And what I, another of my touchstones is, you know, fighting productively and how you fight makes a difference. So not using every past fight as weapons of mass destruction, but to fight specifically about, I'm really upset that you didn't take the bins out or whatever the fight is. Not like you never bloody take the bins out. You're always so fucking lazy, you know, because that you could, there's no, there's no way you can kind of deal with that. Um, but the big thing after fights is repair, this capacity to repair after the rupture and to go slower together and have a level of intimacy about what was the fight really about? Can we understand each other better? What was really going on? Um, and it's very rarely about the bins. It's much more about connection, attention, um, feeling loved, feeling safe, feeling known. And I think often a fight can, you can actually, once you've repaired, you can feel closer to someone. And so fights can be incredibly important in the kind of depth of understanding, because if you really know that you can have a fight and feel closer, you build a lot of trust and a lot of value in that other person mm. um, in mm. your family. And that's as true within siblings as it is with parents and their children. And I think the sibling relationship, which I talk quite a lot about in Every Family Has a Story, is often underestimated how influential and how shaping it is. To each one's lives. Do you think there's a real difference between being the older sibling and the younger sibling? Birth order has a, yeah, definitely has a role to play. It's definitely an influence, isn't it? You know, how crushing for the eldest child to have someone come and steal their spot. Whereas the youngest child's like, hey, I didn't know any different. I've got all these people who can play with me or hit me, depending on what their response to me is. What are some of the factors that contribute to some families that thrive through adversity? or others fragment? Because that's quite an interesting scenario. There's some families seem to really thrive through this and stick together, and there's others that can break apart. And what do you think are the factors that really play out there? I think, I think a lot of it is this flexibility and the capacity to mm. allow difference, allow everybody to ha be themselves, that there isn't one way to solve a problem or one way of being given an event that's happened to the whole family. So allowing difference, I think, is a big thing. And knowing about how to express love. So love is a verb. It's not just a thing, I love you. It's like loving in action, loving by stepping back, loving by um, letting go, loving by repairing even when you fucking hate them, loving, <laughs> you know, loving doing the things you don't want to do because you love them. Um, all mm -hmm. of those ways of loving are what allow families to thrive in adversity. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, love? It is. It can be one of the most beautiful things on the planet and one of the most painful at the same time. Loving is not a soft skill. 
it is hard. No. You know, we see mm-hmm. it on Disney movies and, uh, you know, happy ever afters. But living loving is probably the most difficult thing we do. Mm. And it, it brings me on, which is quite interesting, to one of your other touch points, which really is very poignant to me. And it's one that I think I've learned a lot about myself recently, um, and especially since I started having therapy, was boundaries. Um, it's one that I think we're starting to speak a lot more about, but I don't think there were many boundaries at all in um, in my family growing up. That just wasn't, I didn't even understand what a boundary was, I think, until I went to therapy and understood it. Can you talk a little bit about them? Because they are really important. I think we talk about them a lot maybe in partner relationships and maybe instead in friendships, but less so in a, in a family dynamic. So I think the simple definition of boundaries is you know, good neighbours have good fences. And you can have intrapsychic boundaries and external physical boundaries. So you can have intrusive emotional bound, uh, boundaries that are crossed when someone is stepping into your being, asking questions, demanding response, not respecting your the sanctity of who you are, but kind of demanding stuff or you know, being coercive, all so many different ways of kind of crossing your interpersonal boundary. And then there's like with siblings, there's like, don't take my stuff. <laughs> like, if you're going to come into my room, knock on the door. Or a parent, like if you're a teenage girl, dad, don't come in and watch me in the shower. You know, there's many different kind of levels of boundaries. And boundaries are shifting and changing so that, you know, for a two-year-old, there aren't many boundaries because your mum picks you up, feeds you, wipes your bum, you know, all of those. Well, probably not at two. Yes, at two, they're wiping your bum. Um, Just thinking of all my grandchildren, I'm still wiping their bum at two. Um, (laughs) Whereas six, already there are more boundaries in place and respecting the child's autonomy and respecting the child's capacity to say no. And to listen to the no and, and, uh, value and hold that they have the right to say no and not pushing against it. Like you have more power and forcing a child, which is again, crossing that interpersonal boundary. So there's a lot of power and boundary. Power and boundaries are often interconnected. And how would you help someone who's listening to this who maybe is frightened to maybe have that conversation around boundaries or not maybe have the conversation even to start implementing it into their family um, or to things that maybe feel right for them? Because it can feel quite a a worrying step to actually go, okay, now I'm going to start implementing this on my side, even if it's just on the emotional side. One little thing. If you're not listening on Apple, you're missing out. You'll find bonus content from my guests, a weekly mini show from me, and you'll get to listen without ads. Start your free trial by clicking try free on the Live Well Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts now. Back to the show. I mean, I think the first step always with anything that you're wanting to be different is awareness. Mm. So if you're thinking about boundaries, uh, kind of go into your body and think of the different domains of your life when you feel comfortable in your body like you feel calm and safe and kind of open 
And when you feel tense and you feel slightly shut down and kind of defensive or you're wanting to withdraw. And if there are those times that your body is like wanting to step back, someone is probably pushing too much in. And or think about the things like taking my stuff or uh, telling, you know, mum, a mum telling you what to wear when you kind of think, no, that's really annoying. I'm whatever mm-hmm. age I am. I'm going to choose what I'm going to wear. Um, so uh, really it starts with the internal recognizing where you feel tense and then thinking of your responses and maybe envisaging, envisaging for yourself what would feel calmer for you. What do you actually need? Um, mm-hmm. So you need to think of what the alternative is and then be specific with the member of your family or your partner and say, I've been thinking about this, this, and this. And I was wondering whether we could think about changing it, that when you do dot, 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 I feel dot, 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 and what I would like is dot, dot, dot. So you Mm -hmm. say it in a non-attacking, non-critical way, but owning your part in it and being specific about what you want. Mm -hmm. What happens when we start implementing these boundaries for ourselves? Do you think that we feel more self-aware during these moments do you think that we start growing our compassion and actually our our own need because I think a lot of the time in families we do put other people's needs first is that what you find yeah I would say that I've definitely become a lot more I think I can be a bit of a people pleaser sometimes um and I think when you tend to be more of a people pleaser you kind of forget your own needs in a lot of situations. So you're kind of th- you're, you're your last thought process. Whereas recently, I think I've become a lot more aware of actually saying no, um, which is something that I, for many years, didn't feel comfortable with at all. So, I mean, one of the great kind of ways of thinking about a good no is that if you never say no, what's your yes worth? You know, it's like diminishing mm-hmm. your value because you always say yes. And also... It means you're always going to be asked because everybody knows you say yes. So having a really good no is really helpful to yourself. Mm. And I think you begin to respect your own time. You begin to respect where you put your energy, where you put your attention. And when you respect that, you feel more confident. And also your yes is much better. So if if you have a good no... When you actually say yes to a request, it's like, yay, I really want to do that. And you jump in. Whereas if you haven't got a good no, you're often ambivalent about your yes and your no. And it's like, yeah, maybe I can. And then you're kind of resentful and muttering and bitching. And actually, it may be been something that you really wanted, but you're so used to just saying yes, you don't even value the yes that you've got because you haven't got a good no. Well, I think all of these things, actually, you know, you speak about these 12 steps and I don't, we haven't touched upon all of them, but I just want to touch upon them very briefly because I'm sure people, you've only mentioned three or four. Self-compassion, communication, fight productively. That one really did stand out for me. I know you've covered it. Difference. What do you mean by difference for anyone who's going to hear? So in families, you can have the child who's very social and chatty and makes friends easily. And you can have the child who's more of an introvert, who's a little bit awkward, who may be very geeky, who isn't sporty. Um, and there can be a way of one of those children 
getting more attention and more value than the other one. And actually, we need to, both children need to feel valued for who they are, not who they think, who their parents think they should be, or often it's parents project onto their children who they would have liked to have been. Um, so let the children be who they are and allow them to be different from you and from each other and to be loved and valued equally. And then you've got times five positive responses. So this is a bit connected to the shitty committee is that if, um, and this would be true of your romantic relationships. It would be true if you're a boss, it would be true with your best friend. And it's true in families is if you find things are getting a bit rocky with everyone and everyone's like looking at you slightly like, Oh my God, what's she going to say next? One of the, the lenses to look at yourself is have I been more negative or more positive in the last like 24 hours or few days? And not to count this and tick it off, but to sort of let yourself know that to get the best out of other people, praise really works a lot better than criticism. Criticism really does not work in relationships. So to have five more positive interactions saying, I really love it when you empty the bins rather than you bastard, you never fucking empty the bins. <laughs> so that when, they, when you so kind of overpraise what you want, rather than criti criticise what you don't want. But also just to generally to acknowledge and affirm five times more than criticism tends to work in, in all of your relationships. All of your relationships, but also just generally through life. I think if you're more optimistic around certain situations or even in work, you know, if you think, okay, well, this is not going to happen, genuinely, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but if you're more optimistic towards something and the outcome, then you're you're pouring more energy into that. And I, I do think there is something very important there to be said. We know that even changes our physiology with our stress levels and, you know, Definitely. chronic disease, all of those things. So And your outcomes. Optimists do have better outcomes than pessimists. I mean, some yeah. pessimists would say they're being realistic. And you can have a covert optimist under a pessimist, and they kind of can have good outcomes. But having a growth mindset, having a can-do mm. attitude, having, we, having hope, all of those things instill oh, yeah. the possibility and the energy in both yourself to go out and have a dream and picture how you're going to make the dream, have a plan and make it happen. Um, and that people will follow you because you're offering that in a way that pessimism, like, oh, it's never going to happen, um, doesn't. It's so true. You said a really beautiful comment. The hope is the alchemy that turns the life around. That is such a beautiful saying, and, and you mentioned it there, and I was wondering if you were going to kind of bring it in, into any of our conversations today, but I think it is such a poignant point to make, that it is, if we don't have hope, then actually things feel very pessimistic, very destructive, and we can actually spiral into that very negative mindset, and it can be very hard to think of those five positive responses. So what I hate is sort of toxic positivity. So I mm. think what's important is again, in some ways, the dialectic, to name what is difficult and painful, like I am mm. suffering, I am grieving my dad, I am terrified about my job, I am, you know, having a really hard time, I've just been given a cancer diagnosis. Name the bad, 
allow yourself to feel it and feel the emotion in your body and say what the emotion is. I feel angry. I feel scared. I feel out of control. And then turn your attention to the light and to hope and the possibility that I can make the hope happen. And then you have a plan A, a plan B, and the belief that you can make it happen. And so that supports you to manage what is bad. What you can't do is be given a terrible, say, health diagnosis and go, I know I'm going to be fine, because it doesn't, our body doesn't operate like that. Because our body, if we block the emotion, we block our capacity to take in this new piece of news. And then the emotions will keep pushing up in us, telling us you've got bad news. Listen, you've got bad news. There's a new reality you're needing, needing to face. And everything that we do to block that pain is in the end the, the thing that does us harm over time mm. and sometimes through generations. So we need to allow the pain through and that releases us then to turn to have hope. Mm. It's that beautiful acceptance. It feels like the acceptance that you can hold that space for yourself. It is acceptance and some things aren't acceptable. And so, you know, that your child is dying or has died, for instance, is unbearable. And I don't think you can ever accept it, but you can accommodate it. You can learn to live with it. You can find a way of giving, of living with what is unbearable, given mm. that you have no control or power over it. I'm going to come on to that. Before I do, I just want to make sure that we finish these, these points, because I think they're very important. We've done the, we've done the boundaries, the reflection. Can you talk about that? Show yourself some love and buy some arena flowers today. I have made them a vital part of my own self-care routine. So don't wait for someone else to give you that. Use the code LWBW50 to get 50% off your first three subscription boxes. If we don't have the capacity to reflect either within ourselves, in our mind, which is probably the hardest way of doing it, or through a journal, or through talking to a friend, or through talking to a therapist, on the kind of full story of our behaviour, we have no opportunity to really learn about the impact of how we are in the world. So, and this can be when small things happen, when big things happen, and when good things happen big, good and bad. But I think having that insight and that capacity to reflect on our part in it. So if you're thinking about yourself in your relationship, for instance, and you're furious with your partner, really, you need to be able to reflect on, well, what is my part in us continuously having this fight? Because with two people, there will be two balls that are constantly moving and that you have a part to play. And so having the capacity to reflect and know what your contribution is to whatever is going on in your life is an is the first step really to being able to change it and improve it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any questions that people could ask themselves in those moments? So I think if you're looking at patterns that keep playing out, like I keep having fights with my mum, or I keep hating this particular task in my job, or um, 
I keep saying to myself, I'm going to get up and exercise three times a week. And I never do, or I do it once. The capacity to reflect, like go in and think about beneath that difficulty, what are my tropes, my old patterns? Do I really basically not like myself? So I'm not, I'm acting it out by not exercising. I don't think I'm worth it fundamentally or fights with my mum. It's like, you can't all be just your mum. <laughs> there's, there's two of you in it. So, you know, look at your part. What's your part that you can begin to um, reflect on and be honest with and then acknowledge and say to your mum, I was just thinking, mum, we always fight about dot, dot, dot. And I realised that I do this and that drives you nuts. And you can literally change a pattern of 15 years by acknowledging your part in it because it releases you both from this wrangle of she's right and she's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a, a top lesson in all relationships is there is no kind of right and wrong. You have to find a way of, of agreeing together what you both want. I think that's the biggest thing, isn't it? Taking the right and the wrong out of it. Because yeah. as, as soon as you do that, it actually just dispels so much. Yeah, because otherwise you're bringing in the kind of barrister in your brain, like bringing in another bit of weapons of mass destruction, bringing in the tanks, bringing in the, you know, you just don't, you can't resolve it. Yeah, it's interesting because as you describe it, it feels quite calming. Yeah. But actually, can, do you know what I mean? But it's on, it, when you're opposing it, you're coming in with those kind of, the, you know, the barriers and the I'm right and you're wrong. It's actually emotionally so exhausting. Exhausting because you're in a heightened state. You're in fight, mm. flight or freeze. And so when you're in a heightened state, your capacity to use your hippocampus, which is your wisdom, which is your experience, which is your knowledge, to inform what you're saying is completely offline, as is your heart center. You have no connection to your emotional heart, trust, love, because it's not necessary when you're in a fight or flight response. So you lose really the bits of yourself that you value. I mean, I think we need our fight and flight and freeze, but the bits we like about ourselves are much more the calmer, more loving, connected wisdom parts. Mm. And I guess with reflection comes your next point, which is change. Yes, that in families, they're always in a process of change, whether it's by age that a grandparent gets ill or a teenager is leaving school or your baby is no longer a toddler or events happen, your parents get divorced or you lose your job or you move house or you move country. So, I mean, families are always in a process of change and need to adapt given the change or your your child gets married you know all of that is influences the your internal world as you navigate yourself emotionally with the external world of your family and within that i can imagine this can change power dynamics it's one of your 12 touch points so power i think is often not talked about enough in relationships and power linked to control. So often the kind of collaborative power rather than top-down power is a really effective way of managing 
power and control within your family. And sometimes we hand over power too much to children, like we give them too much power, like choose which school you want to go to. Like, no, that isn't their responsibility. They don't know. Like, give them a, a voice and an opinion, but you're the parent. And sometimes, like with little kids, you just have to have the control. Like, no, they touch the fire. <laughs> so, I mean, there are different types of power at different ages and different stages. Mm. But be recognising your own power, not denying your power, and recognising you probably have more power and influence than you think. And so, I mean, one of the things I talk about in in both of my most recent books is that parents with adult children and grandparents, I think, have much more power than they recognise. Um, and I think they don't fully take on board the influence that they have, that they can give that eyebrow raise um, and not say anything, but that can send real fear through their grandchild or their child. Mm, that's interesting. Is that, is, is that how you approach with your grandchildren? The no, nine I grandchildren? Not. I hope I'm have. open and, <laughs> and like they don't, I don't, I don't um, try and have control. No, I can imagine you're an amazing grandmother because especially everything that you're speaking about on these five steps, I can imagine they're going to be growing up to be very insightful. Well, saying it and doing it are two different things. I mean, if they were on, they would have their own stories to say of me not doing any of these things. So, <laughs> And then the last one I just want to touch upon before is the rituals and fun. So I, I, I think particularly since covid I mean, I think it's changed a bit this summer. Um, we haven't had nearly enough fun. And I completely agree. <laughs> we haven't been silly enough and we've been so serious and frightened and trying to get everything right and perfect. And I think in families, if you play stupid games, you the kind of power goes out the window so that the four-year-old can be brilliant at something that the 40-year-old is absolutely useless at. So, we, I mean, we did a thing where we all had to do the splits and none of us oldies could do it. And all the young were like, Bing-o! so they felt brilliant <laughs> or handstands. You know, I was trying to do hand. I quite fancied myself at handstands because I used to be good at handstands and I was obviously bloody rubbish because I'm 63. But, you know, and so that's great for my six-year-old who's laughing at me being utterly useless. So, I mean, all playing, I don't know, whatever the game is, you change the quality of the connection and we have to work so hard and deal with so much stuff that even just dancing in the kitchen for 10 minutes while you're cooking the supper can completely change supper because, you know, you're just being silly and having fun to the music that you're listening to. And I think rituals are external it's our habits with soul basically which are external ways of behaving that often honor transitions and they can be transitions of the week like it's friday or it can be transitions of age like a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah transitions of celebrations transitions for mourning but rituals i think are really important of in as a cohesive behaviors within families completely i think the rituals are something that actually we don't especially when we move out of home um, I think it's really important to have certain things so you do still feel very connected, even if you're not seeing your family every day. Having those within the family dynamic, I think, is actually really, really important. And just listening to kind of these these 12 
these 12 different steps that you talk about and these touchstones, I think just helps kind of navigate you into certain things where we might only be looking through, as you've mentioned a few times, and I love this analogy, looking through one lens, where actually there's so many different lenses that we can be looking into and it, and it can be hard, but also it can be really enlightening. And again, just hearing you speak a lot, of, a lot on these and even reflecting on my own self and my own family dynamics, it brings a lot more lightness just actually listening to you talk. And I think that's incredibly powerful. Good. I'm pleased. Yeah, I do. I do. Thank I you. think it's really just hearing it's, it's kind of a, it's a very much a, a release when you can go through these and actually think about them in a logical way, um, which doesn't always feel logical when you're thinking about these moments and these things. It can feel very no. kind of one dimensional. I mean, our feelings are not logical. We can't order our feelings to fit like Marie Kondo colours in our pants drawer. So our feelings very nearly are, I mean, are nearly always not logical. They can't fit how we want them to be. So allowing them, naming them, expressing them and recognising that we can't shove them into these perfectly shaped ways of responding is helpful. Yeah, it is really helpful. And I guess kind of like bringing this book and going back to the, your book that you wrote on grief, which actually is, again, a really important one, com combining that with family dynamics, because during this kind of life circle of, of birth to death, sadly, like losing parents or grandparents or siblings, um, it's a really hard one to tackle, again, even in that family dynamic. And it's something that you've spoken, you've even done an incredible app to help people process and understand and and connect to that feeling which can feel so distorted and so terrifying to to face head on and to talk about I think it's something that is also really hard to explain could you just give me kind of a an understanding of when we're faced with that when when whether it's an unexpected event or one that we know that's coming what's your first kind of step into understanding grief i mean the the task of grief is to face this new reality that the person we love is dying or has a terminal diagnosis or has died and that the emotion of grief is messy and chaotic and not what we would choose we can be furious we can be frozen we can be jealous, we can be hurtful, we can act out, we can have these huge messy feelings that we become a version of, of ourselves that we don't like and we didn't choose. And unfortunately, how our mind and body works, and it, the two are interconnected, the mind and body, is that pain is the agent of change. So pain is the thing that forces us to recognize this new reality because when everything is okay like if you're feeling calm today and you're feeling happy inside everything is kind of going smoothly when you feel this distress coming through your body as a wave which it often it does in grief it's telling it's emotions are transmitters of information are telling you something is up your dad has died or is dying or your daughter or your sister or your grandparent or your friend or whoever it is and it's changing the reality in your mind about 
your experience, that this person is no longer present. And when we find the support and the support is our attitude within ourselves, but also the love and connection to others, that when someone we love dies, it's the love of others that most significantly enables us to survive. And so if you look at all the research, um, 15% of psychological disorders come from unresolved grief, but the single biggest predictor of outcomes for people who are grieving is the support they get at the time and after the death. So that's the most important thing. And the support comes in the forms of people, but it also comes in the form of your behaviours, like taking exercise really helps. Because grief often feels like fear and it often lowers that kind of Jaws music, like, um, And then when you feel calmer, you make better decisions and better able to support yourself. And the other task of mourning is to kind of recognize the reality that they are no longer physically present once they've died, but also that the relationship continues, that our love for that person never dies, and to find ways of remembering and connecting to them through different touchstones, touchstones to memory. So you may wear their watch or a piece of jewelry or have a, a necklace or make their chicken dish or go for a walk where you walk with them. And so part of grieving is, on the one hand, feeling the pain and allowing yourself to emotion grieve. The other side is allowing yourself to have tasks and get on whilst adjusting to the reality and also letting yourself love and feel connected to the person that's died. I think that connection is obviously one of, of such importance. And I think also that can become something that's so important because a lot of people that I know who are close to me that have gone through recently some really some really traumatic moments with grief, I can see that they're turning a lot of blame onto themselves. And I don't know what you'd have to say about that, but I see it quite a lot recently. And I think that can be really harrowing because it kind of emphasizes the pain even more when that when that blame is turned on to oneself on how maybe they had a relationship with that person over the last 20 years or whatever that thing they felt regretful of is is kind of the forefront and centre of of what they're going through. What's your advice for kind of not turning that blame onto yourself um, and to holding that space? I mean, I think there are many aspects of it. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is the the person that kind of um, came up with the five stages of grief, um, said... Guilt is the most painful companion of grief. And I think most people feel guilt. Um, and many people have a lot of what ifs. What if I? Why didn't I? If only I. Um, and that is wanting to have control and be able to go back and somehow change what happened so you have a better outcome. And so I think with with guilt and regret and um, all of those what ifs. There are lots of things that you can do, but to be very brief, one of them is to not conflate the feeling with the fact. So you may feel guilty, like allow yourself to feel guilty, and you feel it often in your chest or your stomach. But separate it from your cognitive thinking, the fact. Feeling guilty doesn't make it so that you're not necessarily guilty. Let your head have its voice, but let your heart have its feeling and let them sit side by side. Don't try and knock one out with the other because then they both have that capacity to kind of move through you rather than getting in this awful battle 
where you're trying to stop yourself feeling guilty or that you get into battle proving your guilt and kind of go down a rabbit hole of putting your case yourself on the dock like a sort of like a prisoner and imprisoning yourself with a life sentence forever this is my mm. fault so mm. again being self compassionate is really important as a habitual thing you can just give yourself like a half hour guilt free break where you kind of set yourself a kind of clock like i'm not going to let myself think about this i'm going to do something that distracts me that's nice that is calming so that you begin to have new habits i mean there's obviously a lot more but that that's a start it's a really good start thank you so much for coming on today it's been so insightful and it's incredible the work that you're doing so it's been a real privilege to have you on oh thank you sarah it's been a lovely conversation thank you so much for inviting me on Thank you, Julia, for a very powerful and necessary conversation. I've just recorded an extra conversation with Julia about why you may want to consider having therapy with your family and just how you can approach this conversation. Now, you can listen to this bonus episode as well as additional content from me when you sign up for a subscription using Apple Podcasts. Start your free trial of Live Well, Be Well now. One last thing, I've created something just for you. It's a 30-day online course to give your well-being journey that extra boost, and it's totally free. Go to sarahammacklin.com to download it now. There's a link in the description, and I'll see you on the next episode.